If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. What a great crowd tonight. Thank you for being here this afternoon, for being here. And uh, I'm going to hustle through this text of Scripture, but I want to do it justice at the same time. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. And this is Hannah's prayer and song is the heading that I have in my Bible over this chapter. And we'll just study the first 10 verses. I'm going to read the 10 verses to you because I won't reference them entirely in the message. I'll reference them generally as we're trying to pick out what is the main idea of the text today. In verse 1 of 1 Samuel 2, the Bible says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. That's exactly what Eli just saying. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty uh, men are broken and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out for themselves bread and they that were hungry cease so that the barren hath borne seven and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The title of the message is simply, Oh, Worship the King. It's no secret that I love sports. I'm passionate about the Oklahoma Sooners uh, in particular, especially during the fall. That, that's a picture of Gaylord Stadium there in Norman. I've been to that stadium several times for OU games, and I've loved it. I, I love more than just what happens in the stadium. I love getting there early and, and walking around and, and, and seeing uh, all the, the vendors and, and, and the food trucks on campus. I love to feel the energy as you walk through, the collegiate spirit, uh, the unity you have on campus with people you've never even met because you share the same love for Sooner football. I, just, I love that. And then you walk into the stadium for kickoff and it's absolutely wild. The stadium's filled sometimes with, with nearly 80,000 people. I think its capacity is just over 80,000 people. It's, it, it's, it's an insane amount of noise and energy and enthusiasm and passion in that stadium. Are you ready for some football? If you're in the Big Ten, I apologize. I, I'm sorry. The reason sporting events, I think, carry so much power and influence like that for modern people is because they give us kind of a place where we can express our need for worshiping something greater than ourselves. And I use my, my language carefully because oftentimes what happens inside of that stadium is worship. Every human being has a built-in tendency to worship. God has placed in our hearts the desire to get excited about and passionate about and give worth to something greater than ourselves. And when you think about it, when it, when it comes to sporting event, events, think about all the things we do in stadiums like that or even in front of our own TVs in our living room that we might end up doing in a worship service. Expressing emotion, praising, singing, lifting our hands, praying. For Dallas Cowboy fans, a lot of crying. <laughs> the reason I draw that comparison is because I think it gives us helpful insight into our worship. 
I think it's possible that sporting events draw out the right kind of worship to the wrong God. Wouldn't you agree that, that in America it's easy to replace the right God with the wrong God and the right worship with the false worship? Which is why in our small groups, our fellowship Bible classes on Sunday morning at 9.45, we just finished a series called God's, little g, God's at War. Talking about all the different type of gods that, that we American Christians set up in our own lives that usurp the rightful place of the real God in our heart. And I'm just saying that it's highly possible for church-going people like us to get off track and fall into false worship. Not the worship of a statue or even anything inherently sinful, but something that isn't God. So from 1 Samuel 2, here's what we discover. The right worship to the right God and the result of it. And this text through Hannah's example reveals the transformative power of worshiping the king of kings. Here's a quick definition of worship so we're all on the same page. Worship is our glad response to the goodness of God. There's a lot of good definitions of worship. This is my favorite. It's our glad response to the goodness of God. I want to build off that definition by asking two questions from the text. And the answer of those questions will end up forming what I feel like is the main idea of the passage. Here's the first question. What should be the object of our worship? Well, when we look at Hannah's worship through prayer, we see that she keeps God at the center. Would you look at your Bible real quick at verse 1? She said, my heart rejoiceth in the Lord. She said, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Look at verse 2. There is none holy as the Lord. Neither is there any rock like our God. Look at verse 3. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. Look at verse 6. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. Verse 7. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. Verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Then he says, the Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. Now we count somewhere around 20 times that Hannah focuses her worship on God in the span of just 10 verses, which then enables her to kind of sing of these three themes. Number one, her, her, her deliverance. Number two, her reversal from shame to honor when she had Samuel. And number three, the future hope of the coming Messiah. In other words, the big idea is this. God was the focus of her worship. And of course we know that God should be the focus of our worship. We get that. I think oftentimes in this church he is. But let's not give ourselves a pat on the back too quickly until we stop to realize how easy it is to be distracted from focusing on him while we worship. So since we've been speaking about sports, let's just imagine that, that you go to a football game. You go through the parking lot where, where everyone is tailgating in their team's colors. They're talking and they're, they're laughing, they're eating, and they're debating about the upcoming game. Hopes are high and, and excitement is real. So you're making your way through the parking lot with, with the masses of excited fans. You're hearing the team's song uh, play and, and you're, seeing, you're hearing people burst out in that song as they go. You're ready to see the game. And then you make your way through the gates of the stadium. You pass the concession stands with $8 hot dogs and $5 sodas. You, you even get your favorite player's jersey before you go through the tunnel. And then you get to your seat and you look out and you see a great sight. Tens of thousands of people crowding together, not socially distanced, shouting and cheering for little ants running around the green field warming up. The cheerleaders are there. The band is playing loudly. Kickoff is about to ensue. But, but what if just as the game was about to begin, someone in your group declares that they're going to spend the next few hours doing other things? 
And you simply must come with them if you're a true friend. Of course, you ask if they've lost their mind because after all, you come to watch the game. But they respond by telling you that they're going to be looking at the concession stands and walking around the stadium to see the architecture and accessing the functionality of how the electronics work at the gate. They even mention to you that they could go back into the parking lot to see how many cars there were and to see how many people were tailgating and how, pe- how many people weren't. And they insist one more time, you've got to go with me. After all, you, you could spend the next few hours counting each member of the audience one by one. Sketching the architectural design of the stadium. Sounds fun, doesn't it? What would you say to that person? Here's what I would say. Do what you want, but I've come to watch the game. Bring me a hot dog on your way back. (laughs) See, all the fanfare that is associated with a football spectacle is there to focus and highlight the main thing. And that's the game itself. People don't go to a football game for the parking or the concessions or the people. Well, some women do, but most people don't. They go for the game. It's convicting to me that most of us would never pay for tickets to see our favorite team play and then get distracted with, with lesser things, yet we can go to God's house to worship Him and get distracted from the reason we're there in the first place. And I think we'd all agree that what happens at God's house is eternally more important than any game. So ask yourself, why do you go to church in the first place? To see people? To talk with people? To make sure you're noticed? To feel better about yourself? To hear some good music? Do any of those sound familiar? How about your worship and prayer? Do you focus mainly on your needs and your desires and your issues? Or do you focus mainly on everybody else's issues? And that is intercession and it's great. And supplication is great. But how about adoration? Do you spend any time in adoring the name of your God? Do you spend any time in private worship in your prayer time just talking to God about God and lifting up God for who he is just like Hannah did? Do you remember how Jesus started his model prayer? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Before any supplication, before any intercession, he had adoration and he worshiped the name of his Father. Really evaluate your worship at church. Evaluate your worship during a song service, which this afternoon it was amazing. Evaluate your worship through giving. Evaluate your worship through ministry service. Evaluate your worship through prayer. Really evaluate if you're focused on God as the object of your worship or if you're focused on lesser things. Here's the second question. What should be the result of our worship? If God should be the center and the focus of our worship, what should be the result? Well, we see through Hannah's worship in chapter 2 that her life was transformed. I base that on what her life was before she started worshiping. Before chapter 2, in chapter 1, the narrator writes her and and describes her as being agitated and irritated and mourning and broken and empty and barren. Another way I think that we can look at what she was before chapter 2 is she was at war with herself, she was at war with others, and she was at war with God. Think about this. When I say she's at war with others, particularly I'm talking about her rival Penina. Do you remember that? Her her rival Penina uh, ridiculed her infertility. Now consider the pain of this. She had to be around the woman who, who she shared a husband with. And through that husband, this woman, her rival, had 10 kids. And that same woman scorned her daily for her inability to have kids, something she couldn't even control. But it wasn't just Penina. It was her clueless husband, Elkanah. I say clueless because he sees her crying and he tries to comfort her with two scoops of mashed potatoes. 
Like, that's not good. If it was chocolate, maybe. Not mashed potatoes. He's trying to romance her through his words, but those don't work because he doesn't understand the depth of her hurt. And if you're married, you know how lonely and frustrating that it can feel when your spouse doesn't understand you or support you in the way that you need supported in that moment. That was Hannah. But her conflict didn't only come from without. Her emotional turmoil came from within because the text in chapter 1 describes her with bitterness of soul, with a grieving heart, weeping sore, having no appetite. Then she was at war in a sense with God because it shows her weeping bitterly, it says, and pleading with God, pouring out her heart to God, asking God in a way, why are you allowing my rival to do this to me? Why did you create me for barrenness and not fertility? I mean, this was a bitter and jagged pill for her to swallow. That's her story in chapter one. But look at her story in chapter two. She's radically transformed in a number of ways. I'll just run through these real quick. Verse one, her first few words were praise to God. Verses 3 through 5, she thanks God for overcoming the enemy. Verse 8, she sees her story in God's story. Verses 2 and verse 10, she knows God's character, his holiness and justice. Verse 10, she sees God's coming salvation. She declares that he is the coming king. Here's the point. When we read her song, now stay with me. And we, we study her prayer to the Lord. We see that the life of Hannah moves from emptiness to fullness. It moves from pain to praise. It moves from mourning to joy. Because worshiping the Lord transforms the worshiper. And here's why. Because when we worship God, God meets with us. And by his grace, he meets with us just as we are. But by his grace, he doesn't leave us that way. That's why you can go into your prayer closet to worship feeling defeated, but walk out of victor because worship transforms. That, that means you can open your Bible with a bad attitude, hear from the Lord, and close your Bible with a good attitude because worship transforms. You can come to God's house backslidden, worship Him in spirit and in truth, and walk out right with Him because worship transforms. You can kneel at an altar feeling far away from God, but after worshiping Him, you can get off that altar feeling close to Him again because worship transforms. I can see in, in how God has transformed Jenny and I's lives through our giving. And by the way, that is a way of worshiping God. We have faithfully been able to worship the Lord together through our giving for nearly 15 years now. And each year of tithing and giving to missions and giving what we could towards the building fund, I have seen how God has transformed us from being tight-fisted and selfish to being generous and sacrificial. And He continues to transform us more and more as we worship more and more through our giving. Well, in fact, I think through our giving, God has transformed us more than our giving has transformed other people. I'm not saying, listen, that, that church or religious activity is like a phone booth was to Clark Kent. You go in and you walk out and you're a different person just because you went in. Being here today and walking out simply doesn't transform you. It's when you come into this place. It's when you go into a prayer closet. It's when you enter into private worship. It's when you serve in a ministry. It's when you worship God in spirit and in truth and He is your focus. That's what transforms I'm saying when God becomes the focus of every form of your worship, you will be changed. Yeah. Statement. Worship to God is the doorway to transformation. The answer to those two questions forms this statement. Worship to God is the doorway 
to transformation, which begs the question, if you can pray, if you can come to church, if you can sing praises to God, if you can serve in a ministry, if you can give an offering and you can do all that without ever being transformed, without falling more and more in love with God, something's not right about your worship. You might be going through the motions, but the focus of your worship is still you. Two application statements and I'll be done. Number one, when you worship, work hard to not get distracted. I don't know about you, but, but, but my phone is the chief distractor when I try to pray. It just is. I try to read my Bible. And if that's you, let me encourage you. I'm just going to get practical. Turn it on airplane mode. Turn it off. Put it in another room. If fatigue distracts you while you're praying, stand up and pray. If your own thoughts just run wild as soon as you start reading the Bible and you can't think of anything but what you're supposed to do on that day or when you're praying it does that, let me encourage you to type and, and print out a specific prayer sheet so you can stay focused. Private worship will only go as deep as you are focused. When you come to church to worship, can I encourage you? Prepare before you come. Get your mind focused on God before you get here so that it doesn't take two or three songs, spiritual songs, hymns, whatever. To bring you into the right mindset. It's, church is so much better when you walk in having already spent time with God. Having already participated in private worship of God. When your focus is on God. Not who you got to talk to and what you got to do. And, and who you got to catch up with. I love the fellowship we enjoy here. Fellowship Baptist Church. I love that. But may the chief fellowship be with our God. That's why I started what, what I call the pastor's preview. It's not meant to be fancy. I'm not letting the guys bring a professional video camera in there or lighting in there or anything. Just give me something I can hold my phone with. I just want you to be able to recognize that that Sunday worship is a Saturday decision. And so I encourage you to get on there and you'll know what text you're going to be preaching. You'll know the topic of the fellowship Bible class. You'll know anything going on that day that I feel as the pastor you need to prepare your heart for. I mean, if, if, if athletes can prepare religiously for, for, for one game a week. Can we not prepare for the Lord's day and for our worship of him when you're singing? Listen, don't focus on how the song is making you feel, how it's speaking to your situation more than you're focusing on the God of the song. Center your singing on the one you're singing to. See, we can't get that confused. Worship is to be done in spirit and in truth. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people here, especially newer songs, they don't like older songs because the older songs don't make them feel good. But like the new songs because it makes them feel good. And so now they've become the center of their worship. And so we can sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And they're just kind of like this. But you say, he's a good, good father is who you are. I'm not against either one of those songs. But it just proves that the object of your worship is you because it's based on how it makes you feel. Are we singing a certain song that speaks to your situation? I love that that's a byproduct of good singing and good music and good lyric. But that's not the point. The one to worship is not yourself, your situation, your feelings. It's your God. And any song that points us to anything other than him is not a good song. When you worship through giving, don't get distracted by your own greed. Or the legitimate need that giving in that offering is going to create in your life? Focus on why you're giving in the first place. Focus on why you're worshiping through giving in the first place. Because God gave his greatest gift to you. 
Hey, when you're worshiping God with your time and talent, which, by the way, the commitment of this church is unbelievable, and you're doing that and you're serving in ministry, can I encourage you? Don't let your ministry become more of a social event to where you're more focused on talking to those you're serving with than you are serving those you're supposed to be serving. Hello? I mean, that, that, that's possible to happen because we love each other so much, right? And so we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna use Children's Church as an opportunity to talk to the, the people on our team because we're catch, that's the only time we have to fellowship. And old Tommy's over there writing on the wall. I don't know why I said Tommy. Sorry, Kel. Don't get distracted when you worship. Number two, worship whether you feel like it or not. If worship is so transformative, then do it whether you feel like it or not. You know why I say that? Because we live in an age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity to it. But here's the actual truth. We can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship, don't miss this please. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. It's not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. We cannot flip-flop the two. I'm going to say it again. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. It is primarily us making the choice to, to respond to His goodness in our life, whether we feel like it or not. And, and most of the time, when you make Him the object of your worship, if you don't feel like it at first, your feelings will catch up. They'll catch up. Eugene Peterson, an author, said this, We don't worship when we feel like it because feelings are great liars. If Christians worshiped only when they felt like it, there would be precious little worship. Feelings are important in many areas, but completely unreliable in matters of faith. Worship to God is the doorway to transformation. When is the last time you had a moment of worship like Hannah had? Nobody's around but just her and God. It's just you and God. No, you couldn't get any credit for lifting your hands. No one would see it. You couldn't get any credit for, for clapping along with the song. No one would see it. You don't get any credit for crying. No one would see it. You don't need credit for singing good. No one could hear it. You don't get any credit for saying the, the right words in your Christianese prayer, prayer language. No one could hear it. It's just you and God. When's the last time you went into a prayer closet and walked out different? When's the last time you sang through a song service and you didn't just feel good? The lyric of that song changed you. That worship and encounter with God changed you. It was the last time you worshiped at this altar and got up a different person. If worship is so transformative, we need to do it and we need to do it right. And doing it right means that God is the center of our worship. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed?